Well, good morning, and thank you for that uh, warm welcome. Uh, Mary and I are both thrilled to be here back at Compass, and uh, very, very thankful to be with all of you. You know, the Apostle Paul, in uh, several of his New Testament letters, but begins a letter by saying something like, uh, you, you see in the letter to the Philippians, thank my God upon every remembrance of you. And uh, that's the way we feel about Compass, and I feel as I come today. I just am thankful for every remembrance of you. We, uh, we had an interruption in being with you last year. And uh, that just made us long all the more to be with you again. And I, I want to thank you. you. You as a church have given me many, many precious gifts, especially in the people. And I want to thank you for the gift of friendship with Mike Fabares. I'm just so thankful that he is your pastor. And I'm so thankful how the Lord has blessed this church and built this church upon the preaching of the Word of God. That's such an encouraging thing. Thank you. The churches built on personality disappear faster than they are built. The churches built on false theology are shown to be false over time. The church built upon the rock, uh, they're also evident. On the other side of a pandemic, do you recognize how many churches are now saying, well, you know, you can't expect people to come back? <laughs> yeah, you can. Christ's people are going to get together. And uh, a, a church built upon the preaching of the Word of God and the preaching of the gospel that results in a gospel fellowship and the family of Christ being so evident, you're going to get together. I want to tell you other signs of health, just this that I see here. I'm very excited about what's going on with Compass Bible Institute, and uh, I think that you're, you're taking responsibility to help educate and prepare the next generation of pastors and preachers, because let me just tell you that uh, we're heading into a time in which given the secularizing pressures of the age, and given the antagonism coming from the culture, we need young men who are going to preach the word who are, who are tried by those who've been tried by fire and uh, are, are going to be able to stand without compromise and, and also with joy. That's the thing. We need joyous joy. We don't need more angry people. The joy of the Lord. I mean, the Apostle Paul, he knew how to get righteous and indignant when he needed to. But you read his letters, they're suffused with joy. Count it all joy. So I'm counting it joy to be with you, and we have the joy together of turning to the 46th Psalm. So in discussion with your pastor, just about the opportunity to be with you this morning and thinking about the world around us, I mean, just, just understand where we are right now. We're at the juxtaposition of, of, of so many different headlines. For the first time since World War II, for the first time... In 70 years, we have a European land battle undertaken with the, the invasion of one country by another. This is not just a headline. This, this, this is a precedent-breaking, history-making headline. And real lives are, are very much at danger. Real, real moral issues, real, real treaties. You go down the list. We're talking about reality. It's, it, this is not a made-for-TV movie. And it's not just that. Just look at other things going on. I mean, the Let's face it, no matter what you want to call it, this, this thing we'll just call the pandemic, it has really been incredibly revealing. And uh, it, it's, it's revealed all kinds of things and changed the way we, we look at, at, at so many different things. But I think for a lot of people, it has revealed a just basic rootlessness and some, some basic anxieties. And, you know, there, there were people who evidently 
found their identity in their job or in, in, the, in their office or in their particular, you know, whatever. And, and when that got taken away from them, they, they just ended up thinking, I've got nothing, which is why they got dogs. Seriously, there are, you know, try to buy a car now, it's not easy, but try to buy a dog during COVID, it was very, very difficult, because people just say, you know, I don't know what to do, I'll buy a dog. So here's the thing, there was an article recently in, in the mainstream media about the fact that an awful lot of people who needed a dog during COVID now have decided they don't need a dog. So evidently, this is the right time to buy a dog. Yeah. <laughs> And there are a lot of dogs who, if they could only understand what's being discussed about them, would be in high anxiety themselves, because <laughs> uh, they're, they're about to change from the center of the universe to something, something else. Um, but that just tells you, again, that we're living in a very strange time. What the Christian church represents, what, what Christianity represents, what the Christian represents is certainty in a world of uncertainty. Grounding in a world that's just increasingly groundless, a security in a world it now knows itself to be very insecure. Truth in a truthless world, reality in a world of artificiality. Let's look to the text. We want what's real. As a human, we have a hunger for reality. And, and that means that ultimately we do come to terms with the fact that if that reality is just what we see in the mirror or what we see around us, we're sunk. But we're not. Because God is. The 46th Psalm, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, he utters his voice, the earth melts, the Lord of hosts is with us, the God of Jacob is our fortress. Come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth, he breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Throughout the history of Christianity, this uh, psalm has had a, a particular role to play, and the church has turned to it time and again. You can imagine why in a time of persecution, in a time of trial, in a time of plague, in a time of, of famine. But just frankly, in everyday life, the church has come back to the 46th psalm again and again because we desperately need a fortress. We desperately need a refuge. And here in this wonderful psalm from the song book of Israel's worship comes this glorious affirmation that it is God who is our refuge and our strength. And he's inclined to us in grace and in love. He's a very present help in trouble. Let's just think about our contemporary scene for a moment. Uh, I can remember back in the 1980s when uh, a novel appeared. It was uh, first uh, published in Czechoslovakia. It then was translated into English by the novelist Mylan Kundera. The title of it's what's important. The title was The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Uh, I am not recommending you read the book. I repeat myself, I am not recommending 
you read the book. It, it's, it's a book about the sterility and artificiality of life at the end of the Soviet age in Czechoslovakia at a time when lies were so rampant, no one was able to tell the difference between a truth and a lie. The, the, the media would report, the, the stores are full of food, you go in and the shelves were completely empty. And, and there's just one thing after another. Unreality and reality have been so blurred. And uh, what, what Kundera, the novelist, tried to demonstrate is that eventually you can't even figure out what your life means. But it was a, it was a secular point of view. But what we see right now is so many people around us are actually demonstrating that unbearable lightness of being. There's just so much emptiness in the society around us. There's just so much, I love the title of the book, this unbearable lightness. Human beings are called to heavy. We are called to meaning. We are drawn to truth. We understand how vulnerable we are individually and socially. We, we yearn for security. We look for a refuge. We, we want authenticity. We, 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 we want a rescue from anxiety. We want meaning. And, and by the way, for Christians, meaning means truth. And, and, and by that, I don't mean Oprah Winfrey's truth. She's the one who popularized this very interesting individualistic notion of your truth. And, you know, let's just say that doesn't work in court. You got a murder trial. And you just say, tell me your truth. And, no, we need to know the truth. But we, we, we are meaning-seeking beings. And we're also drawn, and, and by the way, this is a, I didn't intend to talk about this, but I'll say this because I'm working on this in a book right now. One of the major points of the Christian worldview is that being made in the image of God, we're actually drawn to beauty. We're drawn to truth. We're drawn to the good. But we often, in the secular context, get to what we think was good or what we think was beautiful, what we think was true, only to find out not good, not beautiful, not true. But here's the good news. There is one who is good and beautiful and true, infinitely so. There, there is one who is self-existent. We understand we're not self-existent. <laughs> we're not self-existent in our birth. We're not self-existent in our conception. We're not self-existent in our every breath. God is our refuge and our strength. You compare that to this unbearable lightness of modern life, we, we see several things. Number one, the undermining of truth. This is now a deliberate effort. So all around us, for instance, in society, but especially in the academy, especially the closer you get to the elite academy, to the universities, the closer you get to a very complicated, self-conscious denial that truth even exists. Back in the 1980s, this was referred to as postmodernism, the idea that all truth is socially constructed. There's no absolute truth. There's no correspondence between a statement and an absolute truth. No, truth is something that is put into a claim by people in power in order to oppress others. And then you understand, okay, here, here's how the Marxism walks in. And so, so then the, the, the role of the, of the good person is to bring about a revolution in order to overthrow these claims of truth and in order to free people who are oppressed by these claims of truth. And you look at it and you say, okay, well, maybe that works in an English class. Maybe. Well, it's actually taken over so much of the academy. The idea that truth is just socially constructed. There's no objective truth. 
But this then gets to the undermining now of matter. And by matter, I mean reality. I mean, I mean like this, this, uh, this, this metal podium. It, you know, we're, we've reached the point where people are now denying the reality of the material world. You see this in Silicon Valley. There are people who actually believe we are living in a simulation. You got to love it. The people who are selling video games actually say, some of them, that they believe we are a video game. That some alien intelligence has created some kind of project in which we're the simulation. And uh, there's nothing real. We're just characters on somebody's screen. I, all I got to tell you is, if, again, part, with a part of the apologetics and, and a part of defending the Christian faith is to point to the ludicrousness of alternatives. I was going to say, you know, how do you say you love your child if it's just a simulation? What sense does it make? Who, who goes to bed at night saying this was a, a, a fantastic turn of events in the great simulation of which I am a character? You, you, just, you just don't say that. You don't, you don't, a young man doesn't come to a young woman and say, you know, um, and even though this is just a simulation, let's simulate marriage. You know, I, I, no, no. You know, we, in other words, it's ludicrous on its face. But you just step back from that and you recognize, okay, the war on matter, the war on being. The Bible begins by telling us God made human beings in his image, male and female created he them. We're living in a society that increasingly says male and female, man and woman, boy and girl are artificially constructed, socially constructed realities. And that human liberation comes by denying those artificial distinctions. Now, by the way, there, there's a basic principle of, of the Christian worldview, which is that the falsity of a worldview is demonstrated in the fact that over time, it simply doesn't work. And, and that's just something to keep in mind. So, I mean, all the, all the vain philosophies of the world, all the ideologies of the world, all the godless philosophies of the world, eventually are demonstrated to be false by the fact they don't work. Now, there's a deeper theological reason here. It's because they're not true. They don't comport to reality. They conflict with creation. And you say, where are you going with this? I'm going with this, that if you're going to buy into this revolution against matter, and you're going to say that even, even the idea of male and female is just an oppressive, you know, socially constructed reality, let me tell you what you're not going to have. You are not going to have babies. You're not. Because babies require a male and a female. And in other words, all of this begins to break down, but we're living in people who say, just look at the headlines again. Consider the headlines. We're being told that it's, 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 a, it's a social construct. It's a, it's, it's a personal identity issue. That's, that's all it is. Now, one of the things we're going to see is that a part of God's grace is in the structures of creation that he has given us. In other words, our happiness, our, our thick lives. Let's think about thick and thin. Philosophers talk about two kinds of arguments, thick arguments and thin arguments. And, uh, and it comes down to this. Thick arguments are giant arguments that, that are built up over time with sophisticated uh, you know, argumentation, like just take, say, constitutionalism or, or the idea of liberty. These are big, thick arguments. Thin arguments, not, not so much. Well, think about lives that way. All around us are people living very thin lives. They're drawn to everything, th this new thing. This shiny new idea, this new, new therapy, this new, this new program, they're, they're, they're going to go, they joined this group, they go, they go to that group. This is a, this is a contrast with, uh, with Christianity. Where you find Christians, you find very thick lives. But you know how those lives are made thick? They're made thick by, say, honoring the orders of creation. They're, they're, our lives are made thick by, for instance, 
marrying and having children. Because guess what? A lot of your concern about what to do with your spare time evaporates. <laughs> no, seriously. I mean, you, you see these people, you, you know, you, you, let's say you have two women, they're exactly the same age. They're both, uh, you know, let's just say, they're both 30 years old. And, uh, you know, one of them's trying to figure out what she's going to do with her day, and the other's got three preschoolers in the house. She has a very thick life. It, it's, I mean, and besides that, there are demands made on her so that she doesn't even get to decide when she wakes up in the morning. You know, I think I'm going to spend this, what, this. She's got six little eyes looking at her. And they're hungry, and they're needy, and their noses need to be wiped. And, and left alone, they will create an anarchy that will destroy the entire house. I had a cartoon the other day. I, I just loved it. I, I just happened to see it. And uh, it, was, it was an old Calvin and Hobbes. Uh, yeah, I know. It brings meaning to life. It does. It does. And if, if you don't know what I'm talking about, then you, just, you need to Google it. And don't think about John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. It's not that. It's a little boy and his stuffed tiger. And uh, there's one point, there's this a cartoon, and it shows the kitchen a complete mess. I mean, there is stuff all over the floor, stuff all over the counters, and Calvin is standing on the counter, and he looks to Hobbes, his, uh, his stuffed tiger, and he just says, in all of his six-year-old glory, he just says, and that's how you make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. <laughs> and just look at that, and you go, okay, okay. Civilization is in putting a parent in that room. And, and then you recognize, okay, again, a thick life, a life of relationships. And that's part of the reason why the Christian church is so important, because the thickness that comes into the Christian life comes by the means of grace, which is the preaching of God's word, and it comes communally in the body of Christ in the church. You know, you want to live a thick life? Go to church. As you come to Christ and you're a Christian, and you say, well, my Christian life seems kind of thin. Well, go to church. Start working in the nursery. Start, you know, get deployed in service. Start doing something. And guess what? The moment people depend upon you to the glory of God, you become someone that you otherwise would never be. Well, all around us are lives that are marked by this unbearable likeness of being. And even as Christians, we can sometimes look at all the headlines and we say, how are we going to handle all this? I mean, the world is not only increasingly complex, I mean, frankly, if you were just to go back 100 years, we wouldn't be having a lot of the conversations we have because the news wouldn't have gotten to you yet. And frankly, it would have been filtered, so by, by the time you discovered a war had been declared, it might have been over. It's a very different world now. We live everywhere all at once. There's no refuge from any of this in terms of the world. There's no refuge from the anxiety. There's no refuge from the headlines. There's no refuge from a lot of the problems and pathologies. We're looking for real. We're looking for refuge. Psalm 46 begins, God is our refuge and strength. Let me give you good news today. You are real. You are not a simulation. Okay? And I don't know that on the basis of my own authority. I know that because the Holy Scripture tells us in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and we are told that he created us in his image, and that means that there are no accidents, and that means that you are not, I am not, we are not in a simulation, and we know this because not we look into the mirror and we're real. That's not it. We, we know it because God is real. He is the sole and sufficient source of everything that is real. And here's the good news. God loves his people, and that's real. Salvation in Jesus Christ is real. Let's look at the psalm. Three stanzas. 
There are people who look at the 46th Psalm and they say, well, here's the, here's the sequence. This stanza is doing this. This stanza is doing that. I'm not going to encourage that. I'm just simply going to say, think of it like a great hymn, because that's really what it is. You have three stanzas, and they're basically saying the same thing in slightly different words. The first stanza, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble, therefore. Now, just understand, you, you know this. You, you, you understand that even in the New Testament, uh, for instance, in the book of Romans, those great verses, the transition comes with therefore. Therefore, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Therefore, I beseech you, brothers, by the, by the mercies of God, you present your bodies a living sacrifice. We understand the therefore. We, we actually hang our hope and our confidence in Christ on the therefore. Christ had died for our sins, was raised by the Father, therefore we are saved. In this case, the therefore comes after the affirmation that God is our refuge and strength. He's our very present help in trouble. That's the only reason why we will not fear, though the earth gives way. Now, the picture here is of the earth just falling apart. And uh, it's, it's an extreme picture. By the way, it's a picture of a reality that will happen. As we shall see, there's the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. This, this earth is going to pass away. That's really hard to imagine, honestly, that this world will pass away. But that's actually what we're told. And it's because the Creator is, uh, is the one who is sovereign over it, and He actually has a purpose even more glorious than this planet. And, and that purpose is a new heaven and a new earth, as we shall see, a, a, a new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. Therefore, we will not fear though the earth gives way, even as, as mountains might fall into the heart of the sea, even though the, the waters roar and foam and the mountains tremble at its swelling. As I was uh, preparing to preach this message and getting the passage even more in my heart and meditating upon Scripture, I was able to look out and see the Pacific, and I realized I'm on a mountain. I grew up in Florida. You see the Atlantic, you're at eye level with it. You know, there's a, there's a hill in Florida, it's like 70 feet tall, and uh, they put a tower on top of it, you know, just to kind of celebrate it. Uh, yeah, but you, I just, I mean, what an amazing place here. It's one of the most beautiful places on planet Earth. You, I'm, I'm sure you do not take it for granted, but, you know, the mountains capped with snow in one direction, this vast, beautiful ocean in the other direction. It's hard to imagine anything more permanent than this. But God does send you some reminders every once in a while with the earth trembling. There is no ultimate home here. There is no ultimate security here, but it's found in God. We're looking at a psalm. William S. Plummer once said about the psalms, they're wonderful, they've been read, repeated, chanted, sung, studied, wept over, rejoiced in, expounded, loved, and praised by God's people for thousands of years. And we understand why. It's because these are the songs that remind us of the grand majestic truths of the faith in such a way that strength and, and, and truth and hope and joy and the knowledge of God are channeled into us. We see this in this first stanza, but let's look at the next stanza, the second stanza of the three in this psalm. It begins in verse 4. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. 
God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Let's just stop there for a moment. It's a remarkable statement we find in verse 4, the city of God. Okay, so you need to think with me for a moment. The Bible as a, as a storyline, and remember that God in his glory gave us the Bible, and we have it in the Old and New Testament, and, and we understand patterns that are found in Scripture. The most important pattern is promise and fulfillment. So we have the promise of a Messiah, we have the fulfillment in Christ. But it also tells us about, first of all, creation, the first chapter, how the cosmos came to be. It tells us what's gotten wrong in the world so very quickly as we get to Genesis 3 in the fall, and that short three-letter answer to what's gone wrong, sin, and it's not just sin as a cosmic principle, it's your sin, it's, it's my sin that creates this barrier between us and God. And, and then there is the story of redemption, and again, the redemption is promised by the prophets, and, and even it, it's promised, oddly enough, in the law, as Paul makes clear, because the law will eventually convince us that we cannot meet its righteous expectations. Thus, we, we, yearn, we yearn for a Savior. And, and then it, it points us to how redemption is accomplished, and then it points us to the new age to come, a new heaven and a new earth. And so one of the things we realize is that the Scriptures, the, the gospel, they free us from the toxic and completely completely horrifying belief that every joy we will ever know has to happen in this life. One of the most liberating truths of the Christian faith is that we do not have to find our ultimate joy here. As a matter of fact, we are told that our ultimate joy, our ultimate satisfaction will happen only in the kingdom of Christ when Christ brings it in fullness and we understand that will be represented, as you find in the, at the end of the book of Revelation, with a new heaven and a new earth and a, a new Jerusalem, the holy city descending from heaven. And those who are in it, the inhabitants of, the, of this new heaven and this new earth, the inhabitants of this new Jerusalem are those who have been united to Christ, who come to Christ by faith. And, and, and thus, because we are Christ, we are joint heirs with Christ, and we will, we, we will live in this kingdom with him forever. And that means that we don't have to get everything out of this life. And that's good news because you will not get everything out of this life. I don't care how much money you have or how much time you have. There are going to be places you want to see you're never going to see. There are going to be experiences you want to have you're never going to have. There are going to be what you think are joys that you're never going to be able to get to. And, and, but all around us are people who really practically believe that they must get all their joy, they must get all their happiness, they must get all their fulfillment out of this life. And it, it's, it's a sad picture to see. But there's only... Let's put it this way. There's, there's a limit to how much you can fight reality. There's a limit to how many operations and how many vitamins and whatever are going to make it work. Eventually, you come to the conclusion... I am not going to climb that mountain. It's not going to happen. I am not going to be the patriarch of a family with 142 children. It is not, I am not Abraham. Uh, I am not going to get to go to all the places I want to go. I'm not going to get to read all the books I want to read. And that, that's kind of crazy. I have a giant library. It's, it's, it's very much the pride. It's, very, it's, it's the ammunition out of which I work. And every once in a while, I buy a book, and people say, when are you going to read that one? I say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get to it. But you know what? Dirty little secret. Do not tell my wife. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I'm going to die with some of these books unread. 
But you know, if I didn't have them, I wouldn't be able to read them when I could grab them if I can read it. You get the logic. Just go with it. All right. But, but, the, but the reality is we're going to have more things undone than done at the end of our lives. Our bucket list, that's the ridiculous thing about a bucket list. Who, what kind of life is it if you can do your bucket list? It's a pretty pathetic bucket. But Christians are those who know, yeah, we, we, can, we can actually have a bucket list, but you know what? There are going to be things left in that. And, and besides that, there are, there are joys infinitely greater than that. We don't know yet. They're going to come to us in the kingdom. And the, it's in the kingdom where every eye is dry and every tear is wiped away. In this life, you will have trouble, Jesus says. But then he says, you'll recall, in the Gospel of John, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And in him, we will overcome the world. But this notion of the city of God, it's a reminder to us that God's purpose is, even as the storyline of Scripture began in a garden and ends in a city, we are right now inhabitants of two cities. Augustine, the great father of the Christian church, made this so clear. It's so helpful. And Augustine was having to minister to Christ's people as the Roman Empire was falling. And, and it was just hard for anyone to imagine how civilization could survive the fall of Rome. After all, remember that Rome was being overtaken by the barbarians, understood to be the very enemies of civilization. Who's going to plant the crops? Who's going to pass the laws? Who's going who's to keep the peace? Christians were shuddering. Some of them were petrified at the thought of the fall of Rome. And Augustine came back and said, just remember, we live in two cities right now. In this in-between time, but between the, 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 Beth, the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his ascension to heaven on the one hand, and his second coming, but between his coming in glory to establish his kingdom in the future, and, the, and, and his saving acts in the past, in the incarnation, in this in-between time, which is the age of the church. This is us. Right now, we're in this, with all the saints who have ever come to Christ, until Christ comes, we are in this in-between time. And in this in-between time, we come to understand that we have to deal with things that we won't have to deal with in the age to come. But we are in this in-between time, cities of inhabitants, we are citizens, actually, of two cities, the city of man on the one hand and the city of God. And the city of man is a very real city. I mean, let's look. I mean, look around us. Look at all the development. Look at all the buildings. Look at the dams. Look at the, the, the city of man is, is a city with its own glory. The problem is it's also a city made up of sinners. And, and Augustine's purpose was to remind us that there is a city of man. There's also a city of God. The city of God's eternal. The, the, the city of God is the kingdom of Christ, and we are inhabitants of that. Paul says we are citizens of a heavenly kingdom. But you know what? The Internal Revenue Service still expects you to pay tax in this one. That's what it is to have this dual citizenship. But the thing is, we have to remember that it's the city of man that's passing, and it's the city of God that's coming. It, that the city of man is temporary, and the city of God is eternal. And here, Israel is being promised uh, the city of God. It, it's just a reminder of the fact that for Christians, our ultimate citizenship, just as Paul said, is in heaven. So let's keep that in mind. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. And then we're told of God, he's in the midst of her, she shall not be moved, God will help her when morning dawns. His kingdom's invincible. We, and it's filled with the joy and the truth and everything that comes in the infinite glory of God. 
But looking back to this, this world, looking back to the city of man, look what verses 6 and 7 tell us. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of Jacob is our fortress. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. I mean, look at what we're seeing right now. And it's not just what's happened in the last, say, 10 days or the last two weeks. It's the rising and falling of nations throughout all of human history. All these kings and emperors who declared that their reign is going to last forever. Ha! You can't even find their tombstones. Seriously. And if you think the United States of America, the world's last remaining superpower, is going to exist forever, you haven't read the Bible. Nothing man builds, nothing humans build, lasts forever. But the kingdom of God, Christ shall reign forever and forever. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but, but God is the one who is sovereign over all. He utters his voice and the earth melts. The Lord of hosts, that is the Lord, that's a majestic picture of God and his glory. The hosts are the angelic hosts, the, the, the armies of heaven. Just think again of the book of Revelation, or, or think of the night Christ was born and the shepherds seeing this angelic host. The glory of God in all of these from heaven's army. This is the, the Lord of hosts. You know, when he shows up, he shows up not just to battle. He shows up to win the battle. And then the next phrase, the, the, it ends that second stanza, the God of Jacob is our fortress. So it, it began in the first stanza by saying God's our refuge and our strength. And then both the second and the third stanzas end with the God of Jacob is our fortress. And again, remember that that's how warfare was fought, that a fortress is the refuge that, especially if you look at the time of the Old Testament, you can go to ruins of so many cities. And for that matter, you don't have to go that far back in history to understand that the only safety was often found inside a fortress when there is an invasion. And we're told that the God of Jacob is our fortress. Who's the God of Jacob? Why that language? Why Jacob? Well, you'll recall that in the Old Testament, repeatedly God identifies himself as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, that's, it's a very sweet thing. It's, it's, it underlines God's covenant that he made with his people. He made a covenant with Abraham, and it has continued through Isaac and through Jacob. And so this is God speaking to Israel in particular, saying, you know who, you know who I am? I am the one true and living God known by Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But, but, but then notice something else. Notice that Jacob here is alone. There's no Abraham and there's no Isaac. So, so why Jacob? And just remember this. It, it is a reminder, a subtle but very clear reminder to Israel that Israel did not choose itself. God chose Israel. And I just want to assure you, this is a part of the grand assurance, the infinite assurance that's given to Christians we have been saved by God. We have been, as the new covenant people, chosen, as, as Israel was chosen, as Jacob was chosen rather than Esau. To say Jacob is to say, you belong to me. Jacob was, I designated him to belong to me, and as you are a part of Israel, you belong to me, the God of Jacob, and as we New Covenant Christians are grafted onto the promises made to Israel in Christ, we belong to God, the God of Jacob, 
The third stanza, come behold the works of the Lord, how he has brought desolations on the earth. He makes war cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. You wonder where that comes from? Well, that's where it comes from. He burns the chariots with fire. In other words, you want to see what warrior looks like? All the, all the armament, all the armies of all the nations gathered together. And by the way, that's another prophecy you'll find in the book of Revelation. They will melt before the Lord of hosts. And that's what you see here. And not only that, he's going to bring peace. He will break the bow and he will shatter the spear. He will burn the chariots with fire. And just think of what we already know from biblical history, he, how he drowned the chariots and, and, and the chariot riders, uh, even when Israel had crossed on dry land. And, and just, just know what you have here is enormous consolation to Israel, it was, which, which was and is always beleaguered and surrounded by enemies. But the climax of it all comes in verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Okay. Uh, perhaps there are some parents of toddlers in this room. Uh, our daughter and uh, son-in-law are the uh, parents of, of three little children, six and three, and uh, soon to be one. And you know what? They do not have a lot of spare time on their hands. Just the way it works. But you take a toddler. I mean, God's glory is in a toddler. And uh, toddlers are reminders that civilization is going to be a lot of work. <laughs> no, seriously, they are. I mean, teenagers are too. But by that time, you already figured that out. It's the toddler who arrives, and all of a sudden you realize civilizing this creature <laughs> is, uh, is going to be a full-time project. It's, and it's going, to take, it's going to take everything the parents have and everything the church has and everything the community has. Otherwise, we got psychopaths coming on the stage. <laughs> but, but let's just say that you say to the toddler, you get a toddler, let's just make it a little boy, just to make the picture perfect, because he's just never still. He's, a, he's like a, a, a whirlwind, you know, constantly. And you sit him in a chair, and you say, Charlie, be still. You say it with full parental authority. It is Charlie's task to learn to obey a parent saying, be still. But just what kind of still do you expect of a two-year-old? I mean, first of all, what does still mean to his eyes? And you know, it's, you just know it's going to happen. You know, there, there is like, he's like a coiled snake. It's, 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 like, it's like a spring inside him. It's, it, it's like winding a clock. You know, you still remember that. But if you wind a clock, you overwind it, that spring is going to go. And uh, you just look at that two-year-old and, and, and then the hand, you know, after the eyes, maybe the nose. And, and then you notice something's going to happen. The legs start to go. The body starts to go. God put more energy in that two-year-old than can be contained. It's, 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 it's like a nuclear bomb. You know, all, 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 all it takes is the right fission, and the next thing you know, there's this explosion of energy. But you look at that and you say, be still and know that I am God. Okay, so you say, I'm an adult. I'm not two. All right? Just how good are you at this? But what we're talking about here really isn't even about the body. It's about the mind. How good are you at being still in your mind? It's the part of the terror of adolescence. 
It's the arrival of complex analytical capacity. I know you need that. It's just, those of you who are parenting teenagers, you want to know what's going on? Complex analytical reasoning. You hope. <laughs> but what that means is that four-year-olds think, but 14-year-olds think about thinking. Okay, but when you start thinking about thinking, it's very hard to stop thinking. This is why you don't have any four-year-old existentialists walking along the left bank in Paris, you know, going, life is meaningless. Uh, <laughs> no, you, don't, you don't have that. You know, a popsicle will cure that real quick for a four-year-old. But, you know, you get a 14-year-old in a funk, and it, it's like the whole world is against me. I am a meaningless speck of lint in the universe. Uh, or it's the 14-year-old who says, I have just discovered that I am the center of the universe. Uh, the rest of the world hadn't figured that out yet. Uh, they will. But you look at that and you recognize, okay, let's, 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 let's get back to the adult world here for a moment. We're not much better at stilling our minds. Be still and know that I am God. You see, if we ever actually reach the point of the absolute stillness of our mind, here's what we have to face. We have to face ourselves. We'd have to face our sin. We would have to face our anxiety. We'd have to face our insecurities. We would have to face our own frailty. And then, and then not just individually, but communally. This is, this is like exactly what you find with, with that biblical confession, I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, as you see in Isaiah's call. Hey, you still your heart, you know what? You're not going to find peace. You're going to find terror if all you've got is you or all you have is earthly. Be still in contrast and know that I am God. There's the, there's the, 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 the entire thickness and weight, what the Bible calls the weight of glory. There it is. There is rescue nowhere in ourselves. There is peace nowhere in ourselves. We crave security. We crave satisfaction. We crave substance. But what we need desperately is a Savior. And in this picture, it's God who rescues Israel. It's God who, in the face of Israel's enemies, breaks the bow and shatters the spear and burns the chariot with fire. And to Israel and to the church, God says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let me ask you, do you feel as vulnerable as you are? I mean, just in yourself. Do you feel the fragility of your life? Do you, do you feel your own unbearable lightness of being? Let me speak to you. If you do not yet know Christ, there is no way out. Let me just tell you, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ the Savior, if you have not come to know the forgiveness of sins and the promise of life everlasting in Christ, if you've not been, by God's grace and mercy, united to Christ, then your life is thinner than you think it is. Your insecurity is based upon a lack of security infinitely worse than you think it is. Your, your lack of substance is incalculably greater as a lack than you think. But you know what? All our hope is in Christ. 
Christ says that all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I'll by no means cast out. And later he says in that very same chapter in John chapter 6, all the, all the Father gives to me will come to me, and of them I will lose not one of them. You want to know what security is? Security is being kept by Christ to the glory of God. You want to know what substance is? Substance is the Christian hope. You, you, you want to know, you want to know where, where identity is to be found? Don't look in the mirror. Look to your creator. For Christians, if your life is feeling unbearably light, you need to understand that, that substance, security, that maturity, they flow into the Christian life by what the church calls the means of grace. And, uh, you know, you could, you could ask other churches what the means of grace are. They may point to sacraments or other things. And, and those things are the, 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 the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. They're, they're, they're means of grace. But the primary means of grace is the preaching of the Word of God. That's why when you come to this room, what's central is the place where preaching takes place. And that's where, why so much time in, in this, this weekly service is devoted to the preaching of God's Word. And that's why, as you grow in grace, you have a yearning for even more teaching of God's Word. And, and that's why, believing in the power of the exposition of the Word of God, you, you, you even have the pulpit of this church broadcast so the people around the world can hear the Word preached here. And, and, and so it's the preaching of the Word of God. If you are not eagerly coming for the preaching of God's word as the, as the central means of God's grace into your life as a Christian, then don't be surprised if your Christian faith is feeling a bit thin and light. The second thing I want to tell you is that if you are feeling some, some lightness, some, uh, some, some insecurity in your Christian faith, then you know what you need to do? You need to make sure you come to church. Because the church itself, as the fellowship of believers, together is being conformed to the image of Christ together. And that's why when we're together, that's why, that's why even in, in the last two years, haven't we learned how much we yearn to be together? And aren't you as a church better when you're together? Aren't you weaker when you're not together? And, and isn't there inexpressible joy that you can't even put into some kind of, of adequate words when you get to sing the songs that, that we sang this morning together. And you, you have all these, all these voices. You have the voices of the old and the young. You have men and women and boys and girls. And you have people with this accent and that accent. And they're all singing together. And you go, this is a picture of Christ's people. These are my people because Jesus Christ is Lord. Serve in the church. That's the other thing. You know, it's just like I mentioned, you know, if you are parenting toddlers, you don't have to worry about what's supposed to be the deep significance of your life today. Well, if you're busy about the things of the Lord, guess what? You don't have to worry about how you're going to fill your time. I was talking to a young man just a few years ago, and uh, he was talking to me about this sense of emptiness and uh, I talked to him about the structures of creation. I, I talked to him about marriage and family. He was a believer. He was a believer. And uh, I talked to him about responsibility. And then uh, I said, what do you do in, to help anybody else? And he said, I study and I, that is, a, a, in college, and uh, I, uh, I have a job. And I said, well, those are, those are God-honoring things in themselves. I said, what are you doing day by day to help people? 
And I said something that I hadn't premeditated. I said, you know what? I just happen to know of a nursing home full of people who desperately need a visit. And uh, this was a young man who was, was called to ministry, just trying to figure things out. And I said, don't wait for a church in which to preach. I, I'm going to set you up to go into a nursing home. And, uh, you know, whatever schedule you can put together, they're there. Doesn't matter. They're not going anywhere. Whatever, whatever schedule you have during waking hours, you will find people who will push themselves in their wheelchair to come hear the preaching of the Word of God. And you know what? Having a 25-year-old young man walk into the room is going to make their day that you just spend time with them. And you know what? That, that's the way God made us. God made us needing to be needed in the kingdom of Christ. Not so that we'll just feel better about ourselves, but precisely the opposite. So that we will be deployed in such a way that Christ's body will be strengthened and people will be blessed and we will sleep well in our beds at night knowing that our life is not in vain. Somebody needs us. The body of Christ needs you. Look at this majestic psalm, the 46th psalm, Be still and know that I am God. I mentioned that this uh, psalm has been so important throughout Christian history. In the year 1529, we believe, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the church, wrote the hymn known as A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And he wrote it right out of this text. And I'm simply going to share with you the last verse. It begins with, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, a bulwark never failing. You know exactly where he got that. But I want to take you to the last verse. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Now listen to this. It takes the Christian faith. It takes the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord to say what follows. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. You can bank your life on that. Be still and know that I am God. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Let's pray. Father, we're just so thankful for all you've given us in Scripture. We thank you for this psalm. May it reside in our hearts to conform us to the image of Christ, for it is in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.